Well, I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you down here, to turn to Psalm 46 now, as we will be briefly meditating on Psalm 46 this afternoon. Sadly, most Christians in evangelical or mainline churches, like the one I grew up in these days, sing few, if any, psalms. And I remember a a hymn book used by the congregation I used to pastor had only two psalms in it. Uh, the, the two with which many Christians are quite familiar, which would be Psalm 23 to Crimmond uh, and uh, Psalm 100 to the Old Hundredth tune. Uh, <clears throat> there was also one psalm paraphrase in that hymn book, as well as in many others, and that's Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress. Uh, through uh, Luther's popular paraphrase of that psalm, many are familiar with at least the general content of Psalm 46, because that's where he got a mighty fortress as our God from. Uh, The caption of the psalm reads, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. To the choir master, that part, or even could be translated to the chief musician, uh, indicates, as we've noted before, uh, that uh, this was intended by the composer from the start to be sung in the temple. So he's saying, here's to the choir master, and here, in this case, has a little bit of uh, instruction in it. Of the sons of Korah tells us, as we've also seen in some other psalms, that uh, with the last couple of psalms, we've seen this too, that uh, it was written probably by the Levites, who were of the, the clan of Korah, the Korahites, who served as the, the musicians and the singers. They were in the music ministry of the temple. The part that says, according to the Alamoth, literally Alamoth is probably virgins, and uh, so according to the virgins, it probably indicates that that was a tune that was well known. Uh, just like I just mentioned that Psalm 23 is well the well-known tune, the most popular tune for that psalm is Crimmond. And so people who know uh, know that that's the name of that tune, if I say sing Psalm 23 to Crimmond, people know what tune we're talking about. And that's uh, kind of like this probably, that that's the, the instruction here is according to the Alamo, that's probably a tune. And then it tells us it's a song. Uh, the term that's translated as psalm in the Septuagint, in the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so this is telling us it's, it's a psalm. Uh, psalm uh, 45 was one of the songs that would be translated as Ode uh, in, in Greek, to which Paul refers when he says that we're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in uh, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19. Well, this is one of those that would be a psalm when he says sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, psalm 46 is a song of triumph. It shows that God's people can and should be confident in the Lord, even in the midst of great earthly trials. Uh, It's often also grouped with uh, Psalms 48, 76, 84, and 87, uh, which are known as Songs of Zion, because it speaks about God's holy city. It has three basic sections, and they're marked off each one by a selah, that selah at the end, 
of each section uh, reminds us to stop and, and contemplate. That's probably the, the main purpose of the instruction there. Stop and contemplate what the scripture said. So when you're reading through scripture, of course, always contemplate what it's saying. But when you're reading through the Psalms and you come to one of those selahs, it's a good time to know that the Lord wants you to stop and really meditate on what was just said. Verses 1 through 3 declare confidence in the Lord in the midst of natural disaster, which can also be pictures of God's judgment coming upon civilizations. Uh, verses 4 through 7 declare confidence in the Lord in the midst of uh, political and international uh, challenges. And then verses 8 through 11 declare confidence in the Lord for the future. So let's first deal with the verses 1 through 3, which declare confidence in the Lord in the midst of a natural disaster. It begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Verses 1 and 11 actually bookend the psalm with similar statements about how the Lord is a trustworthy defense against trouble. So the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm remind us of this. Verse 11 says, He is our fortress. Here, He is our refuge. A place we can take secure cover from danger. When you are finding yourself in danger, physical or spiritual, flee to the Lord. He is a refuge for you. Uh, Scripture also says He's our strength. The source of any strength that we have. If you're relying on your own strength, you won't persevere. But rely on the Lord's strength and you will. He has infinite strength. He is our strong protector. And the psalmist says he's a very present help. Think about that. A very present help. He's near to his people. He's not distant. We might think of an image that would have been familiar to ancient peoples as if your enemies are attacking and you flee and you get inside the city and you're behind the city walls and the enemy army might surround your city. Well, you want help to come. Because eventually, if you don't somehow get rid of that enemy army, you're going to run out of supplies. You're going to run out of food and water. And they're going to have time to dig under the wall or batter it down in some place or or, uh, burst their way through the gates. And So you want help to come. And if your help is distant, you don't know if they're going to make it there in time for you to hold out. But if they're present, if they're nearby... And they come to help you. They can drive off the enemy army and you can be free. Well, God is a present help. And indeed, he's a very present help for his people. He is immediately there. He's not distant. Yes, God is exalted and high and lifted up, but he's also imminent. He's he's right here with you at all times if you are in Christ Jesus. Indeed, as we were talking about this morning, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. You can't be much more present than that. He is a very present help in time of trouble. Well, because this is true, then verses 2 and 3 logically follow as the concluding part of this first section. Therefore, so because God is this very present help, He's a strong refuge, we can trust in Him. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. So part of this is hyperbole, isn't it? So even if the earth gives way under my feet, I don't have anything to be afraid of because God is with me. (coughs) Excuse me. Therefore we will not fear, 
though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And there's that sila that tells us, stop and meditate on this. Because God is a very present help, we need not fear. Even though the earth gives way, notice the the language of natural disaster here that's also, if you compare that to the prophetic language in the books of the prophets, you'll find that often this kind of language is used to talk about God's judgment coming upon a civilization. You might be a faithful person in the middle of a civilization that is coming under the judgment of God because of its faithlessness. And you need not fear. Though the earth gives way, though, and here's the kind of cosmic language that goes with the destruction of civilizations, though mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Think about Jesus saying, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed into the sea. I think this is where that language comes from. Though the mountains be removed, or be moved into the sea, the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, so that's a language of the sea roaring and foaming is language of things that are outside of human control. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Even if God's people are in the midst of huge natural disasters, huge uh, life-changing events around us, we need not fear. Because even if the earth gives way, even if mountains around us fall into the sea, even if the waves are threatening to overwhelm us, God is our refuge and our strength. Even if such things take your earthly life, you actually have nothing to fear anyway. If your trust is in Christ, your faith is founded in a solid rock. The Lord preserves those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, that sila marks this off as a time to stop and reflect on that fact. The next section is verses 4 through 7. And these verses display confidence in the Lord in the midst of political and international challenges. So we have language of natural disaster, which might have some poetic implications for the civilization around us. But here we're talking particularly about civilizations and how nations relate to one another. To begin with, God's people are spoken of in terms of God's holy city here. In contrast to the overwhelming waves of the first three verses, we see here now a river in that city which supplies God's people. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved, nor will help her. God will help her excuse me, when morning dawns. There's imagery there. Hearkening to the Garden of Eden, fed by the fourfold stream. And such imagery is fulfilled in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, which says, Then the angel showed me, John is saying this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, which is in the midst of the city by that time, and of the Lamb. Notice, by the way, the throne of God and the Lamb is the same throne. (laughs) God showed me the river of water, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, 
the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That river is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. In John seven thirty-seven through 39 Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains, Now this he said about the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is present in the midst of his city, which represents his people. Therefore, unlike the earth and the mountains and the sea of the previous verses that are moved and shaken and in turmoil, God's city will not be moved. No matter what the heathens may try to do to her, as we see in the following verses, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. <coughs> so God's bringing destruction on other civilizations. Nations might rage, but the Lord can and will destroy all who oppose his people and his good purposes for them. Therefore, we, re- we remember verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And there's another Selah telling us, stop and meditate on that. Whatever the world seeks to do to God's people, God will bring tumult upon them. He will bring the disaster upon them, but not upon his people. The last section, verses 8 through 11, is is eschatological. That's the technical term. That just means last things. It has to do with last things. We see confidence here in the Lord for the future. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Someday God will put an end to all of man's violence. Here's an image of the earth being quiet. Because God has destroyed every army and every weapon of warfare that could be used against his people. Because of that future stillness, as it were, his people can rest confident now. And be still in our hearts, as God instructs us here. Because we know the Lord will exalt himself among the nations. Indeed, as we were talking about this morning, what's he doing? He's, he's calling his own people out from among all of the nations of the earth. And so, he will both destroy his enemies, but also bring many from those nations to worship him and bring stillness, peace that way. And so the Lord says in verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We need not fear what the nations of the world might do to God's people. Yes, they might persecute us for a time, but the Lord is in the midst of all of this. He's over it. He's reigning over it. And we can be still and know that He's in charge. He is God. Not the nations that are trying to persecute God's people. He'll be exalted among those nations. He'll show Himself to have power over them eventually. We need not fear their armies. Because the Lord is, as we say in the last verse here, as we'll see, is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. 
He's the commander and sovereign over all. And he is with his people. He's with us. As the psalmist says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And this another Selah tells us to meditate upon that. The Lord of hosts is not with the wicked of the earth who would persecute his people. He may use them to chastise his people on occasion like he does the Assyrians and the Babylonians. He uses a chastising rod in his hand for his people. But the Lord of hosts is with us. He's with his people. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, as we meditate upon what this psalm has to say to us, let's sing it. We'll turn in our psalters to Psalm 46, selection B. It's in Benjamin, B. Let's stand together and we'll sing praise to God in Psalm 46. Psalm 46.